Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. chapter 13 I want to kind of back up for a moment and just kind of explain you know where we're at Um, two weeks ago before Easter we went through chapter 12 in chapter 12 that's where John sees two great signs uh, that are they're symbolic okay they're signs one of them is the woman that he sees this vision of this woman in heaven, and then also a dragon. And we know, as we studied it, the woman is a symbol of the nation of Israel, and the great dragon is a symbol of Daniel. Uh, Excuse me, not of Daniel, of Satan. (laughs) Don't know where that came from. Um, Anyways, uh, and hopefully Daniel's not in here, so he wouldn't think that I was <laughs> that Daniel. Um, anyways, okay, I got to regain my composure here. Um, so, chapter thirteen really is a continuation of the signs that John is seeing. Uh, this is what we call parenthetical information. It's not necessarily chronologically uh, following each thing, but it's 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 parenthetical information that just gives kind of a fuller view of what's going on, and that's what chapter thirteen is. We will see two more signs or symbols in chapter 13 and uh, they're very important and by the way you know even people that don't read the bible they're actually quite familiar with some of the things in chapter 13 because chapter 13 deals with the subject of the antichrist and even unbelievers even you know thrash metal guys. I mean, they all know about the Antichrist, right? And the mark of the beast and all that stuff. Um, So it's a very interesting chapter. But not only is it uh, interesting and important chapter, it's also significant in three ways. First of all, it was significant to the readers of John's letter here, you know, the letter of Revelation. Those uh, believers were going through intense persecution at the time. So this letter Uh, and specifically chapter 13, would be very significant to them. It will be significant to those who put their trust in Christ during the tribulation. This chapter will be very significant to them as well. And I also believe it's significant to you and us, uh, you and I this morning, and and I'll explain that why in a few moments. Now, the significance is this. First of all, this chapter reveals or or explains or it shares us with God's comfort. God's comfort in the face of great evil. And we'll talk about that in a few months. The next thing that it does is it also exposes the counterfeits that are, uh, they're exposed so that we're going to recognize them. Satan's counterfeits. And then finally, this chapter also provides some clarity um, regarding some erroneous teachings that even to this day, have plagued the church. And I'll explain those as well as when we get to that. So let's look at the two signs that John sees in chapter 13. By the way, there are two beasts. The first one is rising up out of the sea. He will find out he's the Antichrist, is verses 1 through 10. And then the next beast is one rising up out of the earth, which is known as the false prophet. And that's verses 11 through 18. So we'll look at the first beast first in uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. By the way, does everyone have a Bible and need a Bible? Anyone need a Bible? We're good. Okay, all right. Chapter 13, verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. 
and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. <clears throat> if you've ever read Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, I believe, is a parallel passage. There, Daniel, likewise, had a vision. This, he had a vision of four beasts, and they came up from the sea. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. And he'll find out later that that represents the Babylonian Empire, which he at the time uh, had been a part of that, or you know, had been in captivity during the Babylonian Empire. The second beast was like a bear with three ribs in its mouth. That turns out to be the Medo-Persian Empire that succeeded the Babylonian Empire. The third beast was like a leopard with four wings like a bird and four heads. And that uh, that beast represents Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. And then there was a fourth beast that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. And that beast was dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It had ten horns. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We find out that it will be, because in Daniel's time it hadn't existed then, it will be the Roman Empire. Now, Daniel, in chapter 7, he's looking at this fourth beast. It's really perplexing him. And in uh, verse 8 of Daniel chapter 7, he says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom the three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in his horn, or in this horn, excuse me, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, I'm going to just read down to verse 23 of Daniel chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want, but I'm just going to read this to you. Here and later on in Daniel 7, Daniel's getting an interpretation of this vision that he saw. And regarding the fourth beast, it says, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them he shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings he shall speak pompous words against the most high shall persecute the saints of the most high and shall intend to change times and law then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time but the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Now you recall the beast of Revelation chapter 13 that we just saw in verses 1 and 2. It had seven heads and ten horns. In Daniel chapter 7, which I honestly believe is a parallel passage, the ten horns are described as ten kings who shall arise from the kingdom of the fourth beast. So this beast of Revelation 13, I believe, and I believe it biblically backs it up, he's going to preside over a ten-nation confederation that will be a revived Roman Empire. <clears throat> and I know there's different opinions about this. This is what I believe anyways. And I think scripture backs it up. Seven heads. What's the deal with seven heads? Well, if, if seven heads really speaks of his complete strength, can you imagine fighting a beast with two heads? Um, 
scarier one than that, by the way. Um, but you know, if you be, if you're fighting a head with or a beast with two heads, you know, you kill one head, basically, there's it's still alive, right? Because it's got another head. Well, can you imagine fighting a beast that has seven heads? How much more powerful would that beast be? Interestingly, too, in chapter 12, two weeks ago, we discovered that the dragon, which we find out is a representation of Satan, he had seven heads and ten horns. So there's this great association with Satan. This beast and his government is associated with Satan in some regard. However, I want you to bear in mind that they are separate individuals, the beast and Satan. We find out here that Satan gives the beast his power his throne and great authority. So this beast that John sees, this first one, it's rising up out of the sea. Is there anything significant about that? Well, in chapter 17, which we won't get to this morning, but in chapter 17, in verse 15, John sees this great harlot sitting on the water, and she find, or he finds out that the water represents peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The parallel passage, by the way, in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees these four beasts rising up out of the sea, they're all Gentile kingdoms. So the sea seems to be symbolic of Gentile nations. So this beast is rising up out of the Gentile nations. And also notice that he's rising up out of the sea. Now, if you were in Israel at that time, the only sea that you would think about would be the Mediterranean And it could be that this beast is going to rise up from one of the European nations that are surrounding the Mediterranean. Interestingly, Daniel uh, chapter 11, verse 37. Daniel, that's a scripture that also speaks about the Antichrist. It says, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Um, It's very interesting. The God of his fathers, that's a very Jewish term. And so it says that the Antichrist is not going to regard the God of his fathers. (coughs) So it would appear that although he arises out from a Gentile nation, the Antichrist could very well have Jewish roots could very well possibly have Jewish roots, which if you think about it, for Israel to accept an Antichrist as a Messiah, to allow him to do negotiating and stuff, it would help if he was had some kind of a Jewish background. It might help him to be accepted as a statesman in Israel. <clears throat> now the beast has many names. In Daniel chapter 7, we find out that he's the little horn. In Daniel chapter 8... He's the king of fierce countenance. In Daniel chapter 9, he's the prince that shall come. In Daniel chapter 11, he's the willful king. In John chapter 5, Jesus describes him as the one who comes in his own name. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul describes him as the man of sin and the son of perdition. Thank you very much. It's great having a wife. She can just read what's going on. <laughs> in uh, 1 John chapter 2, that's where we find his name being the Antichrist. And then here in Revelation 13 and, and later on, he's described as the beast. So he's got many names. Now, 
most people recognize him as the Antichrist. Many unbelievers, too. <clears throat> Even if they haven't read the Bible before <clears throat> or believe in the Bible, they know him as the Antichrist. It's, you know, they've heard about it. Now, when we hear Antichrist, we think of anti being against, which is, in a sense. Hollywood's view of the Antichrist is this sinister man, you know, he's evil incarnate. Um, he acts just the opposite of Jesus. You know, even from childhood, you know, anybody crosses his path, he kills them. Because he's the evil Antichrist. You know, if you've ever seen the Omen movies, you know what I'm talking about. And then, you know, if you peel back, you know, you kind of rub your fingers through his hair, all of a sudden you discover this 666 tattoo on the back of his ears, you know, and stuff. That's Hollywood's version of the Antichrist. And Antichrist will indeed oppose Christ. But anti is better to be understood in the sense of instead of Christ, or even better yet, in the place of Christ. Because that's what Antichrist will be. In reality, the Antichrist, he's not going to look sinister and you know kill everyone that gets in his path as a child and everything. He's going to look a lot and sound a lot like what people have a vision or a, a, their, what they're in mind, what their mind, what they think Jesus would be. He's going to seem just like Jesus to them. He's going to be one who brings people together. He's not divisive he doesn't divide he brings everybody together he's one who speaks of great words of love and peace and if you talk to people in the world that's their impression of jesus right a great uh you know jesus doesn't condemn anybody and you know and 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 he only speaks of love and peace um he doesn't speak about sin he doesn't speak about hell or judgment or holiness you see, I believe the Antichrist is going to be a non-convicting replacement of Christ, of the true Christ. He's going to have all the answers, the social answers, economic, political, religious, ethnic, environmental problems of today, all the answers that appeal to man's sinful nature. This is him. He's not going to be this sinister guy. He's going to be the man with all the answers. He's going to be a great statesman. Verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? <clears throat> There's an interesting passage in Zechariah chapter 11 verse 17. And some people believe that this is speaking of the Antichrist. Zechariah 11, verse 17, it says, Woe to the worthless, or it can be translated idol, not idol as in not doing anything, but idol, like an idol, uh, shepherd. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither, <clears throat> and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Many people think that this is a, a, a alluding to the Antichrist. Well, based on Revelation chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, evidently there's going to be an assassination attempt made on the Antichrist. Maybe, you know, the Clinton machine's still going to be around and, and they'll still be active at that time. But, you know, <clears throat> the world is going to generate, they're going to gravitate uh, to this charismatic leader. You know, people in power... They don't really want to give up their power. You know, they don't give it up very easily anyways. 
They've always, people are, you know, it's human nature. People who have the power are always reluctant to surrender that power. And although almost everyone's going to like, well, this beast is, or they won't call him the beast, whatever his name is. You know, he's so great. He's a statesman. You know, he should run for office and they'll do all these things and stuff. Uh, Not everyone is going to be enamored with him because those in power might feel threatened by him. And so evidently someone is going to try to kill him and it's going to look like they succeeded. Now, either he actually dies and comes back to life, although I don't believe Satan can bring people back to life, but he may, he may look just like he's complete. They'll think he's dead, and he miraculously or deceitfully comes back to life, and the world is going to marvel at him. One of the things I mentioned about this chapter is, is counterfeits are exposed in chapter 13 so that we recognize him and satan is a great counterfeiter you know satan is a creature he's a created being he's not like the evil opposite of jesus he was an angel that was created by god that fell and sinned against god he rebelled against god he's not a creature i mean he's not a creator and he's not creative everything that satan ever does is he takes what god has created and he distorts it he warps it, and he tries to substitute it. Now remember back in chapter 11, the two witnesses? We talked about them in chapter 11. They're going to come on the scene during the tribulation. They're going to be in Jerusalem. They're going to be preaching Jesus to those that are around and alive during that day. And they're going to seem invincible to the, to the people because anyone comes near them. They're, they have, the like Elijah had, the same gifts where they're going to be able to actually call down fire from heaven and kill anyone that tries to oppose them for a time until their testimony is completed. But once their testimony is completed, the Antichrist is going to overcome them and kill them. And in chapter 11, verse 11, it says, Now after three and a half days the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Remember, Satan's a counterfeiter. So similarly, the Antichrist is going to seem to be overcome by his enemies, by his political rivals, but he will miraculously recover, and all the world's going to marvel. But it's even more than that. This beast is a counterfeit Christ. Just as Jesus died and resurrected from the dead, the Antichrist will either have died or appear to have died and resurrected from the dead. It's interesting in chapter 17 of Revelation, verse 8, he's described as he was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now it's possible he will actually die and when he comes back to life, he'll be literally possessed by Satan himself. I think he will be literally possessed one way or another by Satan himself. Not by a demon, not by one of the second guys, but by the main guy, by Satan himself. In verse 4 tells us that they're going to worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast as well as worshiping the beast. You know, in that time, people are going to openly be worshiping Satan at that time, knowing that they're worshiping Satan as well as worshiping the beast. Now, as I said, Satan's a counterfeiter. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is a counterfeit of God the Father. The beast, or the Antichrist, is a counterfeit of Jesus Christ the Son, 
And we're going to see in a, a little few verses later on the completion of what I would call the unholy trinity uh, that Satan tries to counterfeit. Now in John's letter, 1 John 2 verse 18, he says this, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. I want to paraphrase that for you. Instead of using Antichrist, what I explained earlier, the in place of Christ is coming, even now. The in place of Christ, the one individual. But many in place of Christ's have come. In other words, the ultimate counterfeit is coming, but even now many counterfeits have come. I can think of the Jehovah Witnesses. They worship a counterfeit Jesus. The the, uh, Mormons, New Age mysticism, humanism, communism, it's all the same lie. Basically the lie is this. Again, Satan's not creative. He uses the same lie as he did in the Garden of Eden. The God of the Bible is lying to you You can be your own God. And that's what all these false religions teach. Well, don't fall for Satan's many counterfeits. You know, unfortunately, we see people that fall for him. You know, if, if, and it's not just these religions, anything that's in the place of Christ in your life, it's an antichrist because it's in place of Christ. And Satan will provide you with any option you want in place of Christ. That's his desire. He and his fallen angels are going to do anything to keep you from a true, genuine, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And my word to you, my word to myself, to those that might be listening, is don't settle for a fake. Don't settle for a fake. Pursue the real thing. Pursue Jesus. So moving on here, verse 5 of chapter 13. Again, speaking of the beast. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now that is a term that we hear over and over and over. 42 months, 1260 days, a time, times and half a time, and three and a half years. It's all referring to the same thing. It's all referring to half of the seven-year tribulation. The tribulation is known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the 70th week of Daniel. And half of that, uh, of that tribulation is going to be called the great tribulation, the second half of the seven-year tribulation. So these 42 months and 1260, it's all referring to the same time period. Verse 6, Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Now, as you recall earlier in our study in Revelation, there will be a temple standing in Jerusalem during the tribulation. That's one of the things that the Antichrist is going to negotiate so that Israel finally has their uh, temple there again. But that temple is going to be devoid, or void, I guess maybe is a better word, of the Holy Spirit. Because it's an offense to the cross of Christ. It's a substitution for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because once more, they'll be be sacrificing animals again. God's presence is not with it. It's not God's desire. His spirit is not there. We get all excited about the third temple and all that. Well, I'm excited because I know that means Jesus is returning that much sooner. But I'm not excited about a temple, and neither is God. 
So I don't think that Antichrist is going to be blaspheming the tabernacle or the temple uh, there, but I think he's going to be blaspheming the temple or the tabernacle in heaven that all the other tabernacles and temples are a copy of. He's also going to be speaking blasphemies, believe it or not, of you and I. He's going to be blaspheming me and you. You might say, well, well, where do you read that? Listen, you and I are going to have been raptured into heaven before this occurs. We're those that are going to be in heaven. He's going to be blaspheming you and me and all the saints, the church that is in heaven. And, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time, and I'll get into that a little bit later, trying to figure out the possible identities of who the Antichrist is. I don't really care because I'm going to be in heaven. It's not going to matter to me. You know, you think about the church, though, and blaspheming the saints. You know, even now, in my lifetime, I can remember, you know, I grew up, I was a child of the 60s. I grew up in the 60s. And I remember that the church, in Hollywood anyways, depicted, was somewhat respected, right? In the 40s, all the way up to the 50s, you know, the, your TV characters, they, they went to church. And it wasn't mocked, it, wasn't, it was just, that was part of life, you know. And so you'd, sometimes you'd have an episode where Andy Griffith is in church, you know, or something like that. So for a period of time, in my generation, in my lifetime, the church was somewhat respected. But then the late 60s, and I would say all the way up to the early 90s, it changed to where the church became totally irrelevant. And it was portrayed as totally irrelevant, something to be mocked. But that's even changed. Now they don't just mock the church. From the 2000s, I think, to the present, the church is considered harmful, hateful. It's bad. You see that quote there from Richard Dawkins. I'm persuaded that child abuse is no exaggeration when used to describe what teachers and priests are doing to children when they encourage to believe in something like eternal hell. If you're teaching your children the truth of Scripture's People like him are calling you a child abuser. That's gone from mocking. That's outright saying that we're harmful. Fundamental religious people are the problem standing in the way of society's advancement and evolution. That's the world's opinion of you and I. And by the time of the tribulation, we are going to be all that's wrong in this world we're going to be the, it's going to be us we're the problem of what ails the entire world and so those the, the blaspheming of the antichrist you know those crazy christians were removed by aliens for the good of humanity you know maybe that'll be one of his excuses of, for the rapture of the church verse 7 it says it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority was given over every tribe tongue and nation and someone will right now say whoa wait a minute that says the saints that means that the saints are going to be on the earth during or the church is going to be on the earth during the tribulation doesn't it listen i did a count in my in my my bible study tools and if you go to the Old Testament and you type in saints, it, occur, it occurs about 30 times. Saints are mentioned in the Old Testament before the church ever existed. Because in the Old Testament, the church was a mystery hidden in the Old Testament, but it's, of course, revealed in the New. Besides, regarding the church, Jesus said, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
So who are the saints that are being referred to in verse 7? I believe it's both Jews and Gentiles who are alive during the Great Tribulation who turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior. The problem is, or it's not a problem, but they will. There's a cost to pay that none of us have had to pay. They're going to be martyred as a result of that choice. Verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You know, there's no middle ground is going to be tolerated during that tribulation. You're either going to worship the beast or the Lord Jesus. And you know, today, in reality, it's the same. You know, you're either for the Lord or against the Lord. Those people say, well, you know, Jesus was a great teacher. You know, he's either Lord or he's not. He's either God in human you know, in, in, he's either deity who, who is incarnate or he's, you know, well, you're either going to worship him or you're either for him or against him. But, you know, the thing is, today we don't stand at the door here with a knife or a sword and say, are you going to accept Jesus, you know? And if not, you know, we're going to chop your head off, you know? We don't, we don't force people to choose. The Holy Spirit doesn't force people to choose. But during the tribulation, people who are alive then, they're going to be forced to pick a side. It's interesting too. It says, um, <clears throat> all who dwell on the earth will worship him, of course, except those whose names have been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's an interesting phrase, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You know, some people, they think that, you know, you know, God created this perfect world and then all of a sudden it was corrupted by sin and now all of a sudden, you know, it's like, <gasps> can't believe it and now god's like i got to come up with a plan to, to redeem mankind as if god had to react to what happened in the garden listen god created a perfect world he created man with a free will knowing that they would reject him and even before they he created mankind even before he requit requ- excuse me created you and i he already had the plan for our redemption in place he was the lamb slain from the foundation that blows my mind when you think about it Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, doesn't that sound familiar to you? It should. As a matter of fact, we've heard it seven times before in the book of Revelation, but there's one important difference. Because earlier in the book of Revelation, we read this. He who has an ear, the same thing, let him hear, exactly the same. But then it says, what the Spirit says to the churches. Isn't it interesting? The church isn't mentioned here. It's just, let him who has an ear hear. Why? Because starting in chapter 4, the church is in heaven. That's why I believe the church won't be on the earth. Another reason why I believe the church won't be on the earth during the Great Tribulation. Verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Not only are counterfeits or Satan's counterfeits exposed in this chapter, but comfort is assured in the face of great evil. Again, think about this. John who's writing this. He has this vision. He's on the island of Patmos. He's been banished to the island of Patmos. He's been persecuted. The church is undergoing great persecution during that time. 
In that time, they had what was known as uh, emperor worship. The emperors were considered deity. And it wasn't even a religious thing. It was more of a public or a, a kind of a, just a, a thing you do. Like you and I, you know, we got we to gotta register to vote or, you know, you have to, well, you don't have to vote, but uh, we have to pay our taxes. You know, there's things that are just expected of us from our government. Well, in those days, in John's days, the people, the citizens of the Roman Empire, they had to go to a Roman official and they had to burn a little bit of incense in this little thing and say, Caesar is Lord. And, you know, for most people, it's like they don't really believe that. But, you know what, hey, you just have to do it. The government expects that you just do it. Well, the problem is the Christians said, I can't do that. I won't do that because Jesus is Lord. And as a result of that, many of them were persecuted to the death. Many of them were killed as a result of it. So that was going on during the time that John's writing this letter. And Nero, we know Nero was terrible. Domitian, so many of the other Roman empires, they were cruel and merciless towards Christians. In fact, the people of that generation probably know more than you and I here today. Uh, They could identify more with this persecution being described in Revelation. Because it probably sounded a lot like what they're going through. But what a comfort to know those that are leading you into captivity will one day themselves go into captivity in the lake of fire. And those who are killing you with the sword will one day themselves be slain by the sword that proceeds from the mouth of the Lamb. You see, it may seem that things are 100% out of control. And my guess is those that are alive during the tribulation, that's exactly what they are This is just out of control. But... What's interesting in this entire chapter, verse 5, for example, he was given a mouth. He was given authority. And it's only for a defined time, for 42 months. Not a month, not a week, not a day more. Exactly 42 months. Verse 7, it was granted to him. Authority was given him. Verse 14 and 15, He was granted. This is significant. You see, no matter what you may feel about whatever trial you're going through this morning, and I know that there are people going through trials and difficulties this morning, and maybe they feel like things are out of control. I want to tell you this unequivocally. I'm standing here as God's representative. I'm telling you here in the presence of God, God loves you. I can say that 100% with full conviction. God loves you. Now, I can't say why you're going through a trial. I wouldn't even try to pretend to say why you're going through a trial. I'm not going to presume, you know, that, well, it's because of this in your life. No, I'm not going to say, I don't even know why. But I do know that God loves you. But I can also unequivocally say this. There's a defined extent to your trial that you're going through. And there's a defined duration to your trial. I I I unequivocally say that. Things are not out of control. God's in control. And so what a comfort. You know, we're reading some of the most terrible things here, and yet it was given to him. God's still on the throne, folks. And that's why he says, here is your faith and your patience. Why? Because trust God in and with your trial. That's our faith and that's our patience. Well, moving along here, verse 11, the next beast. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. 
Now, there's some controversy over this, but if the sea represents Gentile nations, which I believe it does, then the earth might, I'm not saying it does, but it might represent Israel. So this false prophet may, in fact, be Jewish. But notice his appearance is like a lamb. He's going to look like Jesus also. But he speaks like a dragon, and we know the dragon is Satan, the father of lies. In chapters 16, 19, and 20, he's also known as the false prophet. He's going to be a religious leader. Like the Antichrist was a political leader, the false prophet will be a religious leader. Verse 12, And he he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. You see, the false prophet's mission is to point people to worship not himself, but to worship the Antichrist. Does that sound familiar to you? You see, he's the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. He is what completes that, what I would call the unholy trinity. He's a religious leader pointing people to worship the counterfeit Christ. Not only is counterfeits revealed here, not only is comfort given, but I also think there's some clarity provided in some of this teaching as well. Because there's some erroneous teachings, even in the church today. I, I, there's a brother that used to attend this church. I, I, he loves the Lord. I love him. He left our church, and I said, you're, you're welcome to come back any time. Because he was such a great guy. But he didn't believe in the Trinity. He, he was really, and when we did baptisms, I remember him coming to me one night, and he said, you know, and he gave me this big spiel about how he didn't believe that, you know, the, the triune nature of God. He only believed in the Father and the Son and, and the Spirit of Jesus. It's not a separate individual Holy Spirit. But I think this passage here provides clarification. Because why would Satan counterfeit the Trinity if it weren't true? I don't know. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that even he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by whose signs, by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Recall the ministry of the two witnesses in chapter 11. You know, they called down fire from heaven to consume anyone that tried to obstruct their message. Of course, until they finished their testimony, when their time was up, then, then the Antichrist was over, able to overcome them. But the false prophet is able to duplicate the signs and the wonders of those two witnesses. And that sounds very similar to the time when Moses, remember when Moses went before Pharaoh? <clears throat> said let my people go and Pharaoh's like well you know who's God you know and stuff and so Moses was given authority to show perform signs and wonders before Pharaoh and Janus and Jambres they were magicians in Egypt in Pharaoh's court and they were able to duplicate many not all but many of the miracles that Moses performed before Pharaoh and so this false prophet He's going to be duplicating a lot of the miracles. You know, oh yeah, the, the true witnesses were from God because look at they called down fire. Well, yeah, so is, the, so is the false prophet. He's able to call down fire. What makes him any different? You see, here's the other point that I think of clarity here. Signs and wonders are not necessarily from God. And I think that's significant. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, and his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Don't be deceived. In fact, Paul writes in Galatians 1 verse 8, But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And this is a concern to me as a pastor, and I see it over and over again. We so desperately need wisdom and discernment in the church today. We really do, especially concerning signs and wonders and spiritual gifts. There's a problem, though, because some people, they would agree wholeheartedly, oh, we need wisdom and discernment and stuff, but they believe, well, you know, we can't acknowledge any of the signs and wonders. And they throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I think what happens is you know they don't acknowledge signs and wonders at all and they miss out on the full blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it's a shame to see that. But on the flip side, there are people, Christians, who look to the manifestation of the gifts, especially the spectacular sign gifts. It's their litmus test of spiritual things. Well, if, if okay, if there's a miracle, well, then it's got to be of God. Well, look, look at right here. It's not. In this case, it's not. And people who do that, they set themselves wide open to spiritual deception. And it's going to be rampant during the tribulation. So we need wisdom and discernment. We need to ask. We need to examine and say, what's the purpose of the sign and wonder? What's, what, what's, why is it happening? What's the purpose behind it? Who's being glorified? And what is the message being communicated along with the sign? You see, if they're doing something and it looks like it's from heaven because it's a miraculous thing, <clears throat> but if they're opposed to or they add to or they take away from the gospel that you've already received, let them be accursed. Steer clear from them. Well, the false prophet here tells those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. What is this image? I don't know, but you know, you think about it. How many you know, regimes and dictatorships, they always have their images of their leaders, right? The leaders and the regimes are pretty closely tied together. And they're all over the place. They're in homes, schools, public, you know, places, businesses, or whatever. So it might be something like that. But I think what else is interesting, verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now this image, I think, is going to be in the, te- in the temple. I think this is the abomination that causes desolation. So this, <clears throat> the beast, maybe he's in Rome or wherever the capital is of wherever, you know, the, the Ten Nation Confederacy, Babylon, whatever, he's doing his stuff. And there's an image of him in the tabernacle or in the, in the temple. And the, the false prophet is granted power to give breath to this image of this beast. So like, what is going on here? You know, in the past, like maybe a couple decades ago, I could point to uh, great moments with Mr. Lincoln. You guys ever seen that? Ever gone to Disneyland? I love that. I mean, you go in there, there's this, the, the, the robot Lincoln, you know, and he's, he's reciting the, uh, uh, the, the Gettysburg address, you know, and stuff like that. Um, or the Pirates of the Caribbean, man, that was so cool. You know, it's like, wow, look at those moving, you know, things. Um, then came the Star Wars trilogy, 
And what blew me away was the holographic message of, remember Prince Leah? You know, she was speaking, help me, help me, Ben Kalabi, or whatever. <laughs> I wasn't a real big Trekkie, but, or worry, whatever they call him. <laughs> then cloning, remember Dolly the sheep? Maybe there's going to be a clone of the Antichrist that's going to be in, uh, in the temple. Now we've got Sophia, right? Robots with artificial intelligence that are being designed to actually sense feelings and stuff. Fascinating. But I was thinking about that. You know, if we're in our generation, even right now, like Sophia's the latest out of that, all that stuff. Sophia's like, it's the latest technological advance. Do you think that would really cause people to marvel? Because they go like, we know that technology already. I, I, I kind of doubt that that's exactly what's going to... I don't think people are going to get fooled by something like that necessarily. You know, the Bible says idols are just inanimate wood, stone, and metal. They don't breathe. They're not alive. But what if? What if the false prophet is able to make an image, maybe a stone or a, or a metal, maybe a gold image of the Antichrist, and cause it in some way to come to life? What if? I guarantee the world would marvel and they would worship it. And what's fascinating here in Habakkuk 2.19, it says, Woe to him who says to wood, Awake, to silent stone arise, it shall teach. It's very, you know, again, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but it makes you wonder. Whatever it is, the world's going to marvel and they're going to worship that image. It's going to be just like in the days of Daniel in Babylon. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar set up that image of gold and all were required to bow down and worship the image and be killed? It's, it's, it's like a repeat of this, only on a worldwide scale. Verse 16, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. You might think, well, why the right hand or the forehead? There's, I think there's a simple answer to this. Most of civilization has a right arm, right? Right, John? Most, most people have a right arm. But some don't. But everybody that's alive has a forehead, <laughs> I would guess. I mean, maybe that's even, you know. So, but guess what? You're going to have freedom during the tribulation. Freedom to choose. Either your right hand or your forehead. That's the only choice you're going to have. Either way, you're going to have to accept that mark. And if you don't, it's, it's not if you get it, but where you get it. And if you don't, it's a capital offense. Besides that, you're not going to be able to buy or sell. Again, this is a counterfeit because remember uh, the counterfeit or remember the mark that was placed on the 144,000 Jews, the Jewish evangelists during the Great Tribulation? They have a sign on them that protects them satan's counterfeiting that as well but regarding the mark of the beast it says no one's able to buy or to sell without the mark and you know for prophecy buffs that's been fascinating topic of discussion you know they we we can point to you know barcodes and you know all this different stuff uh you know computerized systems you know the e-market you know all that stuff um I don't even need to give examples 
of the technology, except maybe the latest. And the latest was that Amazon Go store. If you remember that? I talked about that earlier in Revelation. That store, you go in there, you just take something off the shelf. It's, it's, it, it has so many sensors and stuff that it, it, it knows whether you take something off the shelf, whether you put it back, how many you take off. You don't have to go to a cash register or you, you just have this Go application um, on your cell phone or whatever. You just go in there, you take whatever you want, and you leave, and it debits your account. You, you don't even have to pull any money out. Man, how cool is that? So, you know, I don't have to, you know, the, the, the technology is already here. I don't even have to give you other examples. The technology is here to implement a cashless society. We, it's, it's here. We know it's here. The technology is almost completely in place to track every person alive on the planet. It's almost. I won't say it's completely here, but think of it. Anybody that has a cell phone, man, they can track you anywhere. Um, your credit card usage. They know where you are. They know what you spend. They know what your habits are. Um, RFID tagging, you know, anywhere you go. If you've got that kind of inf- that technology, they, you know, they tag. They know where you're at. Smart sensors are everywhere. Not only that, but webcams, surveillance cams, satellite imaging, traffic cams. We're getting to the point where there will be nowhere on this planet where you can be off the net or off the grid. They'll know where you're at, plain and simple. So the technology, you know, the issue for our generation isn't a lack of technology for this to come true. For other generations, it'll be like, I can't imagine how that would happen. We can imagine how all this would come into play. So the issue is not technology. The issue today is public acceptance. And we are being conditioned to surrender our rights and our privacy and our individually for the sake of safety. Ever since 9-11, we've been more and more willing to give up our rights for the sake of safety. So it's not an issue of technology. It's an issue of public acceptance, which tells me, man, if the technology is here for that, how close are we to the return of Jesus Christ? All it's going to take, I think, is a worldwide catastrophic event like the rapture of the church, coupled with a charismatic world leader and a spiritual false prophet. What seemed Orwellian in the past, it ain't Orwellian anymore. It's reality, guys. It's here. So how close are we? I think very close. Now I want to say this. Don't be fearful today regarding receiving the mark of the beast accidentally. You know, you go to a, some concert and they want to stamp your right hand. Oh, no, 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 I don't want the mark of the beast. You know, don't, don't be afraid of that. Um, <clears throat> if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, to be blunt, okay, I'm going to be blunt. You're either going to die beforehand or you're going to be raptured beforehand. Either way, you're going to be out of here before any of this takes place. I really firmly believe that. <clears throat> Also, those that are left behind that go through the tribulation, they are knowingly going to be taking the mark and knowingly worshiping the dragon and the beast according to Scripture. So I don't think any of us need to be fearful. You know, I accepted that credit card. I hope I don't, you know, or whatever. Um, I wouldn't suggest getting chips. But maybe nothing on your forehead either. But anyways, don't be fearful this morning unless... Unless you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, then be very afraid. (laughs) Be very afraid. All right. Verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number 
is 666. I bet you just about anybody in the United States knows that scripture. Or, you know, they, Maybe they don't know it by heart, but they know about the Antichrist. They know the number 666. It's a numerical value of the beast's name. And when I was growing up, I had friends that said, it's Kissinger, <laughs> you know, and they had this thing, they could, you know, they, all the letters, it, it equals 666, and wow, Kissinger is the Antichrist, you know, now who knows what it is, people have come up with all different kinds of speculations, and they're endless, and that's what they all are, by the way, speculations, nobody really knows. Here is wisdom, it's the number of a man, and I think that's what's significant, it's just a man, he may seem like the Messiah, but he's just a man. Seven is the number of perfection, the number of God, and he is six, six, six. It could be God's way of communicating to us that no matter what he boasts, what he says, what he accomplishes, how much power he has, he falls short, he falls short, he falls short of Jesus Christ. Over and over, threefold, he falls short. There is one interesting observation, though. There is one other place in the Bible where 666 is mentioned. It's in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. And I'll read it to you. It says, The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Ooh, maybe Solomon's the Antichrist. No, that's not what I'm saying. Um, think about it. King Solomon was a man... He started out well. He was humble. He wanted God's wisdom. He wanted wisdom to rule. He was a humble leader and stuff. He was wise. He was God-fearing. But later on in his life, he became corrupt. And he corrupted the nation of Israel. He led them into corruption with his corruption. And perhaps the Antichrist is going to be somebody who genuinely starts out humbly. Who genuinely has good intentions but becomes corrupted and eventually becomes possessed by Satan himself. Could be. Well, we really don't need to be concerned with his identity, like I said earlier, because the church, you and I, we will be in heaven. Only those left behind, this is going to be important to. So I don't need to, you know, I mean, it's maybe a fun exercise to try to figure out the name or what that number means and stuff. Perhaps, and I'm just saying perhaps, this verse is meant specifically for those that are going to be alive during the tribulation. For them, it's going to, all of a sudden it's going to make sense, and they'll be able to figure out um, who the Antichrist is. Well, in closing, I want to close here. First of all, don't fall for Satan's counterfeits in place of a genuine relationship. Because Satan will offer you anything in place of your true relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't settle for a counterfeit. Secondly, I want to comfort you Understand this, no matter how difficult or overwhelming your trial or persecution may be, God loves you. There's a defined extent to your trial. He's not going to allow you to be trialed more than what be he's not going to allow you to be, you know, go through more than what you can handle. You may think I can't handle anymore, but he knows what you can handle. And there's also a defined duration to your trial. It's not going to last forever. Trust God. Here's the faith and the patience of the saints. And then finally, clarification. Don't be deceived by lying signs and wonders intending to deceive you and take the glory and the focus away from Jesus Christ and him crucified. So those three things I think are so important. Counterfeits are exposed. We're assured comfort 
and we're given clarification. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Uh, Lord, I, I, I thank you that even as terrible as this, may, this chapter is that we're reading, Lord, I thank you that you have provided that the church will not go through this. Lord, I know some people that argue the, the whole doctrine of the rapture would say that we're being escapists because we just want to be out of here. We don't want to go through any trials or anything. But, Lord, even you yourself said, uh, pray that we would be worthy to escape these things. And so, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, we're not destined for wrath, Lord. We're not appointed to wrath. But you've provided a Savior for us. And that, Lord God, you're calling us. You will come and return. And, Lord, if, if these things seem, the technology seems so close, Lord, how much closer is the rapture of the church. And so, Lord, I pray that each of us, Lord, that we would get rid of any counterfeits in our hearts, anything that's in the place of you, and that, Lord, we would uh, be clear in our doctrinal understanding of scriptures, that we won't be deceived in that regard, and that, Lord, we might be comforted in looking up for our redemption is drawing nigh. And so we thank you for this morning. Pray your blessing on each and every person. In Jesus' name, amen.